as an as an adult, I've learned a lot of things. Well, as even as a, I think a fifteen year old, but um, I used to think that Burbank sounded exciting. Oh yes. everything was in Burbank, <laughs> NBC. You know, From write Latin. those letters because that's where they, you'd write letters to the Tonight Show, and it was Burbank. And there was most of NBC was Burbank, and I thought, oh wow, Burbank must be so great. Yeah. And then I went there for the first time, and I was like, it is not. Wow. <laughs> it's not romantic. It's not pretty. It's just Burbank. <laughs> Ready graphics? Ready theme? Cuban. Good evening. For your information tonight. When the book was published, I, I wrote Ted. I said, you know, Ted, if this if this book does well, I think it, it could uh, very, very well uh, breathe some life into your misguided and troublesome career. <laughs> yeah, oh, he really needs it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, the poor guy. Uh, he doesn't work at all. Hi, everyone. This is Jesse Mullins. And I'm Lauren Milberger. And welcome to our second interview with the wonderful Russ Woody. We're so happy to have him back. And as a reminder, you probably know Russ for writing season one's It's How You Play the Game, Kyle, Nowhere to Run. Uh, previous episodes this season for season two, what we've talked about is Here's to You, Mrs. Kinsella, Buddy Schmuddies. Uh, he also brought us Jerry Gold and the Bickners. Particularly this time, we're excited because he's come to talk about his book. Yes, we were we were so touched that we were able to get kind of a sneak peek of his upcoming book called Tuesdays with Ted, which you can now get really anywhere that they sell uh, physical and ebooks. It's a really, really beautiful story about his chance to spend uh, the last year and a half with his father, who was diagnosed with ALS, and how that coincided with his work on Becker and Mr. Ted Danson. Yeah. So the Tuesdays with Ted, which he will talk about in the show, is because they filmed Becker on Tuesdays. And it's about his relationship and also his father's relationship with uh, Ted Danson. So it's a really beautiful story that is moving and funny. Mm -hmm. It's wonderful. He'll tell you a lot about um, his experiences. And we'll also get a little uh, sneak peek at some uh, television filming projects that he's working on right now. So it's a wonderful conversation. We enjoy him so much. It's just such a treat to talk to him and we hope you enjoy it. And when you're done listening to the episode, remember to come and tell us what you thought. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Murphy Brown Pod. Also, Russ is on Instagram, so you can check in with him. Tell him how excited you are about his upcoming Abraham Lincoln project and the book, Russ, R-U-S-S, T as in Tom, Woody, W-O-O-D-Y, on Instagram. We hope you enjoy it. Bye. <laughs> uh, well, you know, after uh, I think it says it in the book uh, that after my dad died, I, I spent another year working on uh, was it Drew Carey after Becker, and then and then I just mm -hmm. you know wanted out. So um, you know, and wanted to write my own projects, wanted to write my own stuff, which I you know I've been doing, and I really love it. So that's in fact I'm working on a thing now about Abraham Lincoln's first vice president, and I've been doing that for several years. Yeah, you told oh, us about that. Yeah. That sounds fascinating. It's still fascinating. Would you like to update our listeners on where you are in the project? Because you definitely talked about it when you were on the show. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's, uh, I am in the process of pitching it to some production companies. Uh, pretty soon I'll be pitching to uh, Ridley Scott's company. Uh, as a uh, eight-part limited series, half-hour episodes. So, uh, and it's uh, about uh, it's a side door view of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, I really just started digging for the humorous things that went on, and then when I found mm -hmm. so much stuff, 
you know, I had to build a, a story around what was, you know, real and a bottom to it. And there's a very serious bottom to it. But uh, some of the stuff, I uh, probably mentioned this stuff in our other interview, but there's so much stuff that's absolutely hysterical. And I got interested in this guy, this vice president, because I first read about him. And he apparently hated the job and uh, he, he hated being in charge of the Senate because there was nothing to do except sit there and, you know, vote in a tie once in a blue moon. So he said, screw it. And he uh, went off and he joined the army and he became a a private. And then he became a cook up at a fort in Maine while he was sitting vice president of the United States. (laughs) So I thought, you know, that was my jumping off point. And I figured, all right, this guy sounds like he's an interesting guy. This guy was a staunch uh, abolitionist uh, and Lincoln was not. And so in the story, I jumped back and forth to when this guy was an old man and he has to go make a dedication to a, uh, another statue of Lincoln. And he's reluctant. To, he has a lot of trouble writing the, the speech about the great emancipator. Lincoln, actually, in the beginning of his presidency, believed in colonization, which is where uh, he believed that, uh, you know, slavery was wrong and that. Uh, they they should free the slaves, but he didn't think that black people should be living amongst us. <laughs> so mm. oh, wow. the plan then was to, uh, it's why they started Libya, no, Liberia, and uh, a few other places, was to voluntarily ship former slaves, they called them contraband, off to uh, other countries, other places. But that, I thought, was a really interesting part of the story is here this guy was, you know, a staunch anti-slavery guy, Hamlin, and Lincoln was not. And now 20 years later, Lincoln is the great emancipator. Mm -hmm. Lincoln eventually came around, and he certainly proved it with the 13th Amendment, but... uh, you know. Well, I think that's such a, a great story, especially for us to be talking about right now, because it brings into sharp relief the idea of a lot of people talk about being on the right side of history and, yeah. and how that's constantly an evolving relative concept that yeah. you could have someone like Lincoln who is on the right side of history eventually or even is against the slavery but might not be fully in the right even right. though they happen to be on the right side of that particular conversation, we we study a, we've been studying a lot of August Wilson this year, and I've been so thankful to have these conversations about how even the language that we use about people of color has evolved from what was considered generally acceptable or politically correct. We have to constantly be on on the edge of questioning: Is that correct enough? Are we yeah, yeah. are we on the right enough side? Because there's always a relative quality to it, and that's so fascinating to bring out right now in our current climate. I think so, too. It's it's uh, fast. And, you know, there's an aspect of the story that uh, regarding that or the awareness of it is that uh, this guy, um, uh, when he was uh, working as a cook, Lincoln was uh, came within millimeters of being shot in the head twice, mm-hmm. literally. And uh, had the, had that happened, this guy would have taken over as president. And he was replaced as vice president by Andrew Johnson. And the next month, Lincoln was killed. And had that worked the other way, we would have a very different country right now regarding 
people of color because this guy was very supportive of them. And Andrew Johnson hated black people. Yeah, he was not the the biggest friend to the person of color. Yeah, yeah. He kept he he rolled back all of uh, Lincoln's more forgiving uh, um, policies. And as a result of, well, who was it? Nathan Bedford Forrest started the KKK, which became very prominent. And then the Jim Crow laws and stuff. And had, uh, you know, had one of those bullets hit Lincoln uh, during the time that Hamlin was uh, vice president, it would have been very different today. Wow. I didn't know, Russ, that it was only a month difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's so interesting because I have to admit, I had not realized until we spoke, I'm sort of embarrassed to say this, that Lincoln had two vice presidents. Because when you... Most you people know, don't know memorize it. Yeah, because yeah, when you learn the history of Lincoln, you learn about what happened that day. And obviously, yeah. you also know about the impeachment. And also that sort of, you know, I grew up being sort of obsessed with JFK and reading a lot oh, about me how too. there have been such, uh, right, the comparisons between, you know, oh, well, they both had uh, vice presidents with the name Johnson. Mm-hmm. And so I remember those little details because of right. the stuff that was similar. And I had no clue. Yeah, yeah. I didn't, I, I don't think... Most people do, and for good reason. You know, a lot of it is, you know, if we got really honest about Lincoln, there's a lot of things to really kind of, you know, look at. Uh, and certainly, into the, you know, you can't really put him in today's uh, mentality because, yeah. you know, it was very different then. In fact, most people in the North were more racist or just as racist racist as people in the South. Mm-hmm. And most, uh, you know, were were very much against abolition um, and believed uh, that that it wasn't a, you know, it didn't, slavery didn't matter as long as it didn't affect them. Yeah, it's it's oh, fascinating. Man. I could uh, go down. So I, I'm not surprised that you found this story because it's such an easy rabbit hole to find. <laughs> Lincoln just fascinates me. He's, he's such a, he was a jokester. He was, in fact, before he became president, nobody thought he was serious enough to actually take on the job because he was always telling jokes and stories. And just the stuff I love about him is he got cornered by this one guy who just goes on and on for like over an hour um, about Daniel Webster, his good friend Daniel Webster, and blah, blah, blah. And Lincoln finally looks his his watch and he realizes it's time to go. So he reaches over and he grabs the guy's thigh and the guy stops and he looks at his thigh and he looks at Lincoln and Lincoln says, my God, you have incredible calves. (laughs) And the guy guy is like, he doesn't know. What do you say to that? And then Lincoln goes, listen, it's been wonderful talking with you. uh, uh, And I will, uh, we'll do it again sometime. He gets up and he leaves. (laughs) And he would do, he would do stuff like that all the time. Another trick of his was to tell a joke, and if he was trying to get out of a conversation and leave, he'd tell this joke that made no sense. And then they'd be standing there trying to figure out the joke, and he'd say, "Well, it's been a pleasure speaking with you." <laughs> <He'd be out laughs> <of there>. Try <laughs> that. But just just hysterical stuff that happened, and you don't realize it. Yeah, it's been a fascinating uh, trip. There's no one has been written about more than uh, Lincoln, uh, except for Jesus Christ. So, oh wow, wow, yeah. <laughs> on that note, on that note, 
we would love to talk about your book, Tuesdays with Ted. Tuesdays with Ted. Can you tell our audience a bit about your book? Uh, Yeah, it was a a miraculous, it was a wonderful, well, wonderful. it was a bittersweet, wonderful year and a half that I spent with my father as he was dying of ALS, which is uh, Lou Gehrig's disease. a hideous, just one of the worst diseases, I think. Um, it, it affects the motor neurons between the spinal column and the muscle groups, and you eventually just lose your ability to use all of your muscles. And uh, uh, my father had the more aggressive type that begins in the throat, and uh, what ends up taking a life is that the muscles around the, the uh, lungs slowly start to uh, lose their ability to function. Hmm. So it's, um, it's pretty grim, but uh, because my mother died kind of uh, unexpectedly the week my dad was diagnosed. And um, so, you know, kind of a shitty week, but uh, she was not a nice person and I had not, been able to spend much time with my dad since getting out of the house at high school. And so all of a sudden he was mine. He was all mine. I got him a house in Studio City and then he started coming to, I was working at Becker with Ted Danson at the time and uh, my dad started coming to the show and he could no longer speak so he had a little machine. Uh, We got him a machine that would do it for him. And uh, Ted uh, just he um, embraced him, and they became friends. And Ted was sort of enamored with uh, my father and I because uh, his own father uh, had died about a year before that, and he didn't get to spend the time that we were getting to spend together. So, uh, and then the cast and crew just came out of the woodwork to do these just kind, these generous things for my father that I never expected. Um, and was really surprised. And I guess my dad sort of became the mascot of the show. <laughs> uh, and so, again, so many funny, so many funny things happened, you know, as all this was going on. And, uh, you know, when they first, when my father first met Ted, he, you know, I took my dad to one of the back lots where we were shooting this scene where a car, we were going to blow up a car because Dr. Becker tosses a cigarette butt aside that, that uh, ignites a trail of oil that, that goes beneath the car and the car blows up. So kind of a technical uh, shoot, but we had the uh, video village and we were sitting around in chairs and stuff and, and Ted comes wandering over and my, I brought my, my dad and my aunt to come see the shooting and they'd never seen anything, you know, like that. So, uh, Ted comes wandering over and, and, uh, I introduced him and, and, uh, you know, my dad and, and Alita and, <laughs> and Ted says, ah, oh, Ted dancing. And Alita goes, Oh, you don't have to tell us that. And, <laughs> and uh, then he asked about my dad's machine and, uh, eventually he asked, you know, if he could, use it and uh, so ted sits down with the machine and my dad helped him a little figure out how to work the buttons it was one of those things that had a mechanical voice and uh so he just he types out uh, that the director 
is a complete asshole. And he plays it out loud, and the director, like Andy Ackerman, <laughs> nicest guy in the world, he comes over and goes, what the, what the hell? And so my dad helps Andy type out something, you know, on a, on a, the equivalent to, uh, to Ted's delightful message about uh, the, uh, the star of the show is such a prick, something like that. <laughs> and uh, it was always men who had to sit down. Not, women never did this. Men had to sit down and type out a, a, some sort of uh, obscenity or vulgarity or a limerick or uh, something like that. And uh, so my dad and Ted started, uh, my dad started coming to the show every week and he had his own seat in the front of the uh, audience. And, um, um, and I remember that same day that we were on the back lot. Um, I had to go back to the office for something. I came back and Ted is sitting with my dad and my aunt and, and I looked over his shoulder and I saw that he was typing out, you know, something about me, your son is blah, blah, blah. And I just like, you know, I just kind of turned away cause like, you know, so many people always compliment you in front of your parents and <laughs> it's, you know, it's so awkward and, and uh, so I, you know, just tried to kind of move away, and then I hear him hit the button, and and I look over, and the machine says, um, "Your son is such an asshole." Um, <laughs> my dad is cracking up, and Ted is cracking up, and I'm like, "Oh, that is so." First of all, immature and cold. That's cold. Uh, <laughs> so they became. Um, friends and you know my dad was a big fan of Cheers and and uh, you know um, he eventually met George Went who guest did a guest spot on the on the show and and um, the the cast and crew uh, Cheryl uh, forget her last name at this moment but she was the stage manager and she's um, not that tall a little thing with the temperament um, of a like a hummingbird. Uh-huh. And as my dad started to have a little trouble walking, uh, um, she came up to me because he always had his seat and he always showed up, you know, a few minutes before the show started. And she comes up to me and she says, your dad's not here. And I looked up and I said, yeah, well, he'll be here. And she said, uh, well, we we need to go check. And I said, well, I'll go check in a while. And she said, no, nah, you, you won't. Uh, never mind. I'll take care of it. And <laughs> so I was getting in trouble. And a little after the show, she comes up and she says, uh, she got my dad and had somebody get my dad and bring him in. And so she comes up to me after the show and she says, all right, here, she hands me a list and she says, here is how it's going to work every week. And I said, what is this? She says, when your dad comes in, this is how it's going to work. And she said, <laughs> She's a little thing, and she was like, you know, really reading me the riot act. And she says, your dad's going to come in through the Gower Gate. Um, at that time of night, only uh, Ted Danson and uh, uh, Kelsey Grammer could come in that gate, but oh, wow. my dad could. Yeah. So he says, she says, he's going to come in that gate. When he, when he pulls up in front of a stage, uh, a guard is going to meet him, help him out, and one of the PAs will also meet him and take his keys and his car and go park it in the tank, which is where they keep all the cars there. 
And then the guard will walk uh, my dad into the stage, up into the stands, and until he's seated in his seat uh, in the audience. And then at the end of the evening, we'll reverse the whole process. And I'm like, wow. And so so I went by my dad's house uh, later uh, that night, and and I said, Jesus, Dad, Cheryl told me what's going to go on. And he kind of smiled, and I said, a star is born. And he cracked (laughs) up, and he said, next year we're going to find a dead hooker in your trunk, and we're going to have to do something with it. Um, (laughs) But uh, all sorts of stuff like that happened. And it was, you know, he became friends with my friends, and... You know, another really, my dad was a World War II vet and he was a Republican when Republicans were different. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I have to add Mm -hmm. that. Um, But uh, um, he, my friends, you know, came, when we got in the house in Studio City and my friends would come over and one of the extras on the show would would you know they're out of work all the time so he'd come over and hang out with my dad and watch john wayne movies and as my dad had trouble you know uh fixing stuff trent would go out and take care of it you know Mm. replace a light or a fixture or whatever uh but half my friends are gay and you know we'd have a party over at his house and these especially the gay men have such a maternal instinct and they would hang back. They're always the ones who are going, what are you, you okay? You need anything? I'll get you whatever. What, what do you need? And so he, and he became very good friends with a bunch of them. And he, I don't know if he'd ever met or known, knew that he met a gay person before that. <laughs> and he eventually, you know, he just, and Gary Donzig, you know, Gary. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, he and uh, his Gary, um, you know, just a loving relationship like I've never seen. And we went out a couple of times to uh, New Mexico and spent uh, Thanksgiving with them. And uh, and my dad really kind of became enamored with the other Gary. Um, My kids called them, uh, they were the Garys, but my kids called uh, uh, Gary Campbell, they called him uh, other Uncle Gary. (laughs) Yeah, it was, even if I wasn't in the story, I would think it was a wonderful a wonderful uh, time, and he, you know, and he got to spend time with his grandsons, which he never would have gotten the chance to do. Um, at one point, he built a huge fort out in his backyard for them, and uh, and then he, uh, and then another point, he's, he he stands, he says he wants all the furniture taken out of the living room, and I'm like, why, uh, why, why? And then he constructed two huge um, tables plywood tops that uh, we brought into the living room and then we went down and he bought hundreds of dollars worth of slot car tracks and he built a huge slot car track in his living room for the boys to play with and uh, (laughs) I'm like standing and the boys are like you know they're beside themselves Henry and Joe and uh, I'm standing and I said geez dad you know when I was their age, she never did anything like this for me. And he mm-hmm. pulls up his machine and he types out, tough. Yeah. <laughs> Being a grandparent is everything changes. Absolutely, yeah. 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 So it was, you know, it was, it was 
probably the most meaningful year and a half of my life. And it was, um, you know, I'm so in debt to the Becker people and I'm so glad my sons had that experience and I'm glad I got to do it too. I mean, obviously we don't want to spoil your book too much, so I won't, <laughs> I want people to go get your book. Uh, but yeah. I will say that a couple of things that stand out to me is uh, you have a <laughs> wonderful story of meeting Ted Danson, which is quite enjoyable. Oh, yeah. You, your first encounter with Ted is how you refer to it, <laughs> which I won't ruin. I also enjoy, based on our presidential conversation, the fact that you reached out to a president. Oh, to George W. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it was when uh, George W. was making a decision about stem cells, uh, mm-hmm. government funding for stem cell research, embryonic stem cell research. Mm-hmm. And I wrote him a letter and and to George Bush a letter that I don't, I don't know if he ever read it. They probably just sent form letters back. But, uh, you know, I said, you know, my father is a, a Republican. He voted for you. And he, like many uh, people, are uh, dependent on um, embryo- uh, the hopes of embryonic stem cell research. Mm-hmm. Uh, which what rankled me so much is that uh, as soon as religious groups found out that they were using embryos for um, research, they they got their panties in a knot mm-hmm. and said, you can't do this, you're killing babies. Now, here's the thing, <sighs> is up until that point, you know, these are couples who take a dozen or or five or six eggs and they freeze them until they want to use them. And then once they have a child uh, or two, they have the children they want to have, they take the uh, embryos and they destroy them. Mm So you're going, all right, well, they're using them for research. The other way is to just destroy them. What is your argument? But it never got to that. George Bush bought it or, uh, you know, played to it. Yeah, or wanted the votes. And uh, so I wrote him a letter. He wrote back, uh, you know, I'm not going to use, he didn't say kill babies, but, uh, and I I never really, I never told my dad, you know, that George Mm -hmm. Bush wrote back and said, screw it. Because my dad was, that was one thing that I wanted to give my dad hope about was Mm -hmm. that it seemed at that time like we were, through Jennifer Estes, uh, an actress who had ALS, and her sister and some other people were putting together uh, uh, ALS, uh, the name of it, to fund research. Uh, and it, it sounded at the time like they were getting very close to some of the research at Johns Hopkins to uh, use uh, stem cells to uh, go back in and rebuild the connection between the spinal column and muscle groups. So that, you know, for a long time, I wanted my dad to believe in that. So I didn't really, Mm. you know, George Bush put the kibosh on all but uh, 60 of the lines of stem cells that were already being used and then stopped Mm. all the other. Yeah. Hope is so important. You know, they say hope in, you know, giving you the spirit to um, get to the next day helps patients so much to than ways that medical science just can't. Mm-hmm. And I, I agree with you that if you could just have 
hope, whether it's real or not, um, it can help you yeah. get to the next and day. And also taking away the concept of referring to something as a death sentence because people yes. have just stopped looking. Yeah. That yeah. idea of that you can't say that about something if you believe that people are still working toward it because there's always innovation, there's always discovery. So, yeah, being given that opportunity to know that at least they're trying. Yeah. But you're right. It's, you know, without hope, you know, once hope goes, no, there's nothing. And, uh, you know, I saw that happen with my dad. It was devastating to me because this is a guy who never experienced a day of depression in his life. And and to his credit, I'll say, when I was growing up, because I had a... um, some very serious bouts of it, you know, and this old pull yourself up by your bootstraps, former Marine, you know, sat down with me and he said, look, Russ, we'll, we'll figure this out. We'll get, you know, and he took me to doctors and stuff and he never judged me like uh, I would imagine a lot would. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it was uh, very interesting. But I will say too that with the limited time we had, we both seemed to, we both knew it. And, and so other things start to happen when that, when you're aware of that. And I, you know, we'd be watching uh, TV um, and uh, he would reach over and just hold my hand and, you know, stuff like that, little things like that don't happen unless you know that you've only got a, a certain amount of time and you need to do and say the things you should do and say. So, which well, was I, another, go ahead. Oh, no, I just want to say, like, to to the point of, you know, the book, I know we're having a, a serious moment of reflection, but one of the things I love about the the tagline in your book is an uplifting, heartbreaking, occasionally humorous story about an old man with ALS, a sitcom, its star, and just enough time for a son to say goodbye. Mm, yeah. And there's something about the fact that it is heartbreaking, and it does make you stop and, and reflect, but it's also the beauty of it is that you got the time to have those lovely moments. Yes. Yeah. So many people don't or else they don't realize it. And, uh, and I didn't come away from it with any, anything really profound, except, you know, when you have those moments, recognize them mm-hmm. and just take them in because that's all there is when you're done. Um, yeah. so yeah, I was so grateful to have that, uh, that time with them. Yeah. I'll tell you one other one is um, I had always I remember from my youth watching Cinderella. Mm-hmm. Do you know the movie with mm-hmm. Jerry Lewis? And I yeah. just remember I yeah. loved oh, yeah. that. Yeah, okay. Movie. I was like, I know it. I couldn't think of. And it. I couldn't find it anywhere. And I finally ordered one on VHS on through eBay. And I finally got it. And I, my, you know, Henry and Joe were uh, four and six at the time. So we'd go over to Grandpa's house. And I said, Dad, I, I got the movie. I got the movie. This is going to be great. And to the boys, I said, you're going to love this. This is really funny because it's the Cinderella story, except it's Jerry Lewis, and he has to do his funny stuff. To so I put the, the uh, video on, and the boys sit on the floor. And my dad's sitting in a chair, and I'm sitting there. And the movie comes on, and it's like the first 10 minutes is just this bullshit where Jerry Lewis obviously – you know, was enamored with his own comedic uh, acting ability. So he spends 10 mm-hmm. minutes making orange juice for his evil stepfather. And I mean, you can stretch out a, a physical bit for a little bit, but you can't, 
10 minutes, you go, okay, all right. You're, <laughs> yeah, you're get it. yeah. Russ, I, I saw Jerry Lewis in Damn Yankees, so I'm familiar with this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so the boys, finally, you know, Henry Henry gets up. He says, well, I'm going to go play with the dog. And he goes outside, and Joe gets up and says, yeah, I'm going to go, too. <laughs> and the movie's like, you know, we're like 20 minutes into it. And my, and my, and my, I look over my dad, and he types out, great movie. <laughs> so, yeah, there's so many things from your childhood that you go, oh, this was the best. And you put it, it on, and you isn't. go, it was not the best. It does not stand up. What was I thinking? Because you're a kid and everything's fun. Yeah. Everything's great. Yeah, you're enamored with this stuff. And also hitting that point with your family where they don't humor you. <laughs> They're not pretending to enjoy it for your, your benefit. They're just like, this is not great. Yeah, yeah, we're we're gonna watch something uh, enjoyable. <laughs> <laughs> so, Russ, I know we talked about your other books and your father, which has been a subject that you've written about before. What made you decide to write about your father again in this capacity? Well, it, this was uh, I think it was a couple years after he died, and I, I realized that, you know that I first of all, um, it re- I really was amazed with the time I got to spend. Um, so I started just making notes um, that year uh, at Drew Carey. I just started making notes and organizing them, and trying to remember the things I could remember while I still could remember them. And uh, um, I mostly, though, wanted to have all this for my two sons because they were too young to understand, you know, they knew grandpa was dying, but they didn't know, you know, what it what it really meant and what was really going on around them. So it, it was mostly for them, you know, and then it, it turned out to be, as I explored more and more things, um, I thought it was an interesting story maybe for other people because we all have to go through something like this or uh, if we don't, we wish we could or should. Um, in fact, my brother, um, I think I mentioned this in the book, he uh, he um, he was not around. He wouldn't. He lived in Salinas, which isn't that far away. But uh, he just came down for one weekend, and that was it in a year and a half. And and um, mm. he, after my father died, he said uh, to my aunt, he said, "Look, maybe I'm a coward, but I just didn't want to see my dad that way." And uh, uh, my aunt meant it sympathetically, but I, you know, I said, "Well, I got to agree with him. He was a coward because ALS doesn't affect the mind." Um, you know, and, and, and I'm sorry if you're a little uncomfortable, you know, looking at seeing the sort of things a loved one is going through. Then you're a coward. Um, and I didn't write that in the book. I tried to be as nice as I could, but. My brother, who is he's ten years, nine years older than I, but mm-hmm. he's always been kind of a, a drama queen. Um, but he uh, sent me one uh, text, I think, and he said, "I read, uh, I read the book. Uh, I, I, I'm reading the book, and uh, you're almost pretty right on a lot of stuff," which is high praise from him. <laughs> and then the next text I got was, "Well, I read some more, and you won't be hearing from me ever again." <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay, um, you know, and that it didn't really hurt me. I, you know, I just 
because we were never that close to begin with. But, but uh, you know, I, I didn't want to be dishonest in the book, um, and I tried to be as sympathetic. Mm-hmm. I basically said he missed out on a, an emotional uh, uh, situation of a lifetime, um, an experience that, you know, if you get the chance and the, and the opportunities are right, you should embrace it and be there. I believe your phrase is, he missed one of life's most significant odysseys. Oh, that's mm-hmm. good. I like that. You done, you done good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as I, as I stumble my way through explaining things. But <laughs> no, I think there, yeah, but there's something really interesting. I, I, did you happen to see the movie uh, The Farewell? No. It came out this year? Mm. It's a really beautiful film. It, uh, Aquafina stars in it. Oh, um, okay. It's a beautiful film, and it talks about her this family's uh, culture overseas and Mm -hmm. uh, her finding out that her grandmother who's in the home country, uh, they find out that she is dying and only has so long, but in that particular culture, they don't tell the person that they're dying. It's everyone else's. I've heard about this. And so it's the family's burden to hold so that she can enjoy herself. Yeah. And so it's the family's burden to hold so that she can enjoy herself. Right. And not be burdened by that. And there's an interesting conversation about the when a family member passes, especially the matriarch or the patriarch, um, right. that it is it is not an isolated event, and we all handle it differently. But I think that's really interesting. Yeah, it's called farewell. The farewell. Well, I do want to say that I I am particularly uh, I know, and I speak for Lauren as well. Touched that you shared this book with us. Um, especially uh, getting an advance. Thank you for taking the time to, to read it. And, and I appreciate that. Well, I, I, and I will say, you know, when you speak of who it could be for, I lost my father uh, 15 years, years ago in March. Um, ah. And I was in my freshman year of college. So I was 18 mm-hmm. years old. And one of the passages of yours, it actually comes right after the Odyssey moment. But you have this great sentence, if you don't mind me reading you to yourself. Not at all. From my perspective, I had only a single grievance throughout the ordeal, though small and hardly worthy of sympathy. I wish I could have spent more time with him as two adults, me not being his child, he not being mine, just two guys. Mm -hmm. And that is something that really resonates with me as somebody who I got uh, less than a year of adulthood with my father. And that is something that I, being able to read this story, uh, to experience uh, vicariously through someone, someone who was able to know that they were grasping that opportunity and cherishing it. Yeah. Um, it's it's very meaningful. And it's also, I think, important for these stories to be told so people, while they still have the chance, can. Yes. Yeah, they can see the time ahead of them. Yeah, I mean, that's really how it hit me. But but also what I love about your writing, which we've talked about before, is that you know you can't have comedy without drama and you can't really have you know tragedy mm-hmm. without comedy like they they come hand in hand and what's great about this is because you have such a great sense of humor is that it's this what could be a melancholy sad story and it's has it's funny <laughs> and it's poignant as well at the mm-hmm. same time which i think is what you need i just can't imagine going through life without making jokes about it there's no yeah. way to, to live without that and so that's what i i love about the balance of the piece of the book well, thank you yeah I mean, at my father's funeral, I made reference to how much he would have loved a fart joke. Like you just, <laughs> you gotta laugh. <laughs> you gotta. And did you was it was it a long illness or did he die suddenly? No, it was it was a very sudden um, freak accident. Did you? Oh God, I'm sorry. That that see, that's a whole. I, I 
I wouldn't even know how to process that. And well, and that's the funny thing. I've, I've had friends who not long after I lost my father lost their parent to a long illness, and I have no idea yeah. how to process that. It's a very interesting, like there's no, I, I always say there's no preferred way to lose a loved one. Yeah. And they both yeah. come with their, their pros and their cons. Yeah. There are things that I missed out on that I wish I could have had, but there are also yeah. things that I did not have to watch. That. But you had a, a, a good relationship, especially the year that you, you, you know you came to maturity. Um, good relationship with him, and, and I was uh, very much a daddy's girl, so I definitely did not miss <laughs> miss out on the love. <laughs> I had lots of it to to cherish. <laughs> good. Well, I mean that's the thing too is I would like when there are those people who um, you know who you do realize you love, just take those moments in, mm-hmm. even if they're not dying. <laughs> exactly. Do it before. <laughs> yeah 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 that's the thing that i think that most people do is they they take for granted the moments while they're Mm -hmm. happening you know there's the old joke you know no one is on their deathbed going i wish i spent more time at work uh yet we do that and (laughs) we we put off things it's really too bad that as humans oh most likely our default is to not really appreciate things unless Mm -hmm. they're gone or someone shoves something in her yeah. face to say, hey, yeah. look what happened to me. Don't let that happen to you. And even then we forget. Well, and that's why I can't really roll my eyes at, you know, a teenager hashtagging YOLO onto something because, you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it may be an annoying hashtag sometimes and it may be used just because you're outside a Froyo place. But I do appreciate the, the concept behind it. Well, that's part of being a teenager is, yeah. is that break. Yeah, and and to reject everything that <laughs> came from the generation before you. Exactly, <laughs> that's your job. <laughs> what did Ted say when you said you were writing a book about him and your dad? Um, I ran everything by him, and I'll, I'll tell you what was mm-hmm. wrong because the original title was um, "Heroic Heart" and "Hearts Heart," mm-hmm. uh, and my agent called up and he said um he said look i i, I really want to go out with this book but uh, you know i want to i want to you know we, i think we should make use of ted's ted danson's name which is something i always tried to avoid i mean i didn't want to make it a i didn't want to prostitute myself that much and, <laughs> and use ted's fame but uh, he said, uh, I think we should something like he said, uh, we should we should call it me and my dad and Ted Danson. And I'm <laughs> like, well, I don't know. Uh, let me think. Let me think about it. And, um, you know, I said I didn't want to be that exploitative. But then I wrote to Ted and I said, look, this is what my agent is doing. And I ran it by him and I said, I'm not very comfortable with this, but. If you are, you know, fine. And he wrote back and he said, well, let me think about it, which is his nice way of saying, you know, I don't know about this. <laughs> and then I got the idea, like, because I, I read Tuesdays with Maury um, years mm-hmm. before I even knew what ALS was, before my dad got sick. And I thought, well, God, there's so many things that were, we shot the show on a Tuesday night. And uh, my dad had the same disease that Maury had. And so I figured Tuesdays with Ted. And so I ran it by Ted. And 
he said, uh, you know, he thought that was pretty funny in a tongue-in-cheek sort of way. And so I said, all right, well, we'll do that. And then they sent me the first cover of the book. And, and it's, uh, there's a giant picture of Ted over the top of it. And then Tuesdays with Ted. And I go, no, I, you know what? I, I would love, let's, uh, they just couldn't help themselves. Whoa, buddy. <laughs> it was like they would have been happy with uh, Ted Danson and ALS. Uh, <laughs> That's marketing. Yeah, and it was uh, it was very funny uh, the whole the whole thing. And, and when the book was published, I I wrote Ted and I said, you know, Ted, if this if this book does well, I think it it could uh, very very well. Uh, breathe some life into your misguided and troublesome career. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, he really needs that right now. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. The poor guy. Uh, he doesn't work at all. And Brian Cranston was really oh. funny too. <laughs> Cause he, uh, I think he read an early draft of the book, but, um, you know, he wrote the really nice, um, a blurb for it. And he wrote back and he said, look, uh, Brian, anything short of a blowjob, and and uh, I, I I owe it to you. And he wrote back and he said, "God damn it, that's the only reason I did this." <laughs> that sounds like Brian Cranston. Yep. <laughs> oh, and I must tell you before you have to go, I must tell you the Candace Bergen exchange. <laughs> oh, please. I wrote to her and I said, because I didn't know where she lived in New York, but I knew she lived in New York. So I wrote to her, emailed her, and I said, um, Candace, uh, this book of mine is being published, and it's about my father and blah, blah, blah. And so she writes back and she says, and I, and I would like to send you a, um, a hard copy of it so that you could read it and maybe give a blurb. Um, but I don't have your address, so if you would, wouldn't mind sending that to me, I'll, I'll see that you get a hard copy. And she writes back and she says, that's wonderful. I, I, I look very much forward to reading it. And, and of course, love Candace. And then I'm realizing, you know, <laughs> there's no address. <laughs> and so I wrote her back and I said, well, thank you so much for offering to do that. If you happen to have any particular address I can send this to, and, and you could just hear her voice when she wrote back. She said, well, of course, I have an address. What am I, a vagrant? <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep, he's on track. <laughs> yes, I, be I believe she has several. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, tell me when to shut up. I should just shut up. Never shut up. No, 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 no. This is great. Oh, <laughs> Jesse, Tom... you... Yeah, please. We always have such a great time when we talk oh, to you. Oh, yeah. Uh, you guys are wonderful. Uh, you have such great rapport, even with each other, and you've spent some time around each other. Yes. Well, <laughs> just, just a couple uh, days. Yeah, a little bit. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No, get you, because you've interviewed uh, both Tom Palmer and Gary Donson, you know, Tom Palmer is the type of guy who just jump in and do anything. And Gary is... Well, Tom actually hasn't... What's that? Oh no! I was going to say Tom hasn't been on the show yet because he didn't start writing the writing Murphy till season oh. three. He's next. You, yeah, Jesse hasn't met him yet. I met him because I was in New York when the revival was here. Oh, yeah. he's funny. He's and one of my dearest. Well, they're both my dearest friends ever, and just good. I mean, really decent, kind human beings, but funny. Mm -hmm. And yeah. Yes. So that Tom helps. is the type of guy who I, I remember we left a Murphy Brown party once on uh, at Warner Brothers and Tom saw this um, it was a Christmas party and he saw this elf 
So he just picked up the elf and put it under his arm, and we're walking out. And and the guard says, uh, "Excuse me, sir." He, he says, uh, "You you can't take that elf." And Tom says, "Well, yes, I can. I would like to have this elf." And he says, "Well, the elf doesn't belong to you. It belongs to the show and Warner Brothers." He says, "Well." Uh, Tom says, I work for Murphy Brown, so it's okay if I have this elf. And I'm standing there thinking, Tom, just let it go. Let him have the elf. And Tom, Tom would not let it go. And I think he finally got out of there with the elf. Um, so he's, he's just brazen at Tom. I was told this story, Russ, he, he left with the elf. <laughs> <laughs> well, I heard this story that uh, when they were back there last year, Tom and uh, Gary we're walking down Fifth Avenue. But Candace lives around here somewhere, doesn't she? And Gary says, yeah, yeah, I think so. And Tom says, no, she lives, I mean, right in the, uh, this block somewhere, somewhere around here. And Gary says, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Tom says, you know her address, don't you? And Gary says, yeah. And Tom says, but you're not going to tell me. And Gary says, no, I'm not going to tell you because you're want, you're going to want to go ring her doorbell and say we're here to visit. And Tom said, yeah, so what? And Gary said, I'm not giving you the address. And Tom said, she would probably like a visit from us. She'd probably appreciate that. And Gary says, no, you can't do that, Tom. And he never gave Tom the address. <laughs> oh, that just so cracked me up. And Gary apparently was obsessed. He gets obsessed with things. In fact, I wrote to him and I said to Gary, I said, uh, Gary, uh, Gary was, uh, your audience knows, he was one of the writers on Murphy Brown. But I wrote to him and I said, what's the weather like in in New York? Should I bring a jacket? And he, he texted back like three pages of, well, it's been this temperature and this temperature throughout the week last week, but it cleared up uh, over the weekend and it looked like uh, the weather report said this. You don't need a down jacket, but I have a such and such jacket, a such and such jacket. If you have something light in between, and it's like three pages. (laughs) (laughs) And I showed it to Tom, and I'm I'm like, Jesus, you can't, I, all I, yes, no, jacket, yes, no. (laughs) (laughs) He just does that. He's amazing. Yeah. He'll, (laughs) if you've got some sort of illness too, he'll, he'll, He'll take a half hour, forty-five minutes to explain to you all the, all the um, symptom, uh, what the symptoms mean and how to treat oh, them. Bless. So he's a, and he knows all the technical terms and stuff. And I just like my head spins when I listen to him describe this stuff. Jesse, do you have any last questions for Russ? I mean, I just want to hang out with you. Can we do that? I know. Okay. <laughs> all right. No, just thank you so much Bye. for coming back on with us and speaking yeah, to us about your project. Thank you. This was great. Oh, and, thank uh, you so much for taking the time to do this. And, oh, and, and I do, and thank you for the plug of the book also. Yeah, everyone go buy the book. Uh, it's also an ebook as well. Is it an audio book? I don't think I saw that. It, or is it coming as an audio book? No, uh, someone mentioned doing that, but uh, it would have to involve an actor or something. It would have to involve an actor or something. Oh, those terrible those actors. Were the worst. I know. I know. Who wants to. Yeah, it's uh, that's the the bane of the existence of writers <laughs> having to work with those actors. I know, very difficult. People. Yeah, they have yes. more emotional problems than so writers. Many. So many. That's why we go to schools just to take care of that. Anywhere yeah. you can get yeah. books, you can get Tuesdays with Ted. <laughs> Thanks. I, that way, I'll be able to support my family. <laughs> we would love to help you. Do We're that. here for you. <laughs> Thank you.
Thank you, guys. Uh, I'm to love you, Bill. Oh, likewise. Uh,